Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief, Georgianologist, and Marm of Smarm, a nickname given to me by Scott Aukerman, Michael Ian Black, delighted as always to be with you, although I speak to you today under duress, physical duress, because somehow today, while showering, I threw out my back. Maybe my back was, was all, all set to be thrown, but somehow in soaping my hair and lifting my arms to rinse the shampoo from my little head, my back just got chucked onto the ground and stomped upon. Now, look, I don't want to spend any time on my own physical discomfort. I'd rather you just thought of me, you know, in the shower, lathering up the steam rising, my glistening body, waiting to be caressed by the soap, bubbles of shampoo running down my back. Never mind the pain. I just, I, 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 I want you to enjoy the eroticism of a nearly 50-year-old middle-aged man in the shower, out of shape, uh, physically gasping aloud because some, something just went wrong with his back. I don't know if you can hear it. Then that little sigh that I just uttered, I don't know if you can hear it. I'm, so I'm, I'm on the Jack-Jack Memorial reading couch, and I'm sort of uh, poised on the lip of the couch, fully erect, not in the, not in the groinal sense, but in the, in the posture 
sense, trying to find a, a, a kind of column that I can arrange my spine in that it doesn't hurt. I don't, I don't anticipate this incapacitating me really in any way, shape, or form, but it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an annoying pain. Of course, there's snow coming, and I'm going to I'm gonna be out there shoveling the goddamn walk with this condition. I'm not asking for any sympathy, but a little sympathy would be nice. And as soon as I say anything to Martha about it, she's going to make fun of me. Oh, you threw out your bag. That's how she talks. You know, I've, I, I've, I've, you know, I've imitated her before, and you've heard her on this podcast. You threw out your bag. Like that. But enough about me. Enough about my woes. Oh, before I go any further, last week, I know I left you on the lips of your seats, fully erect, maybe posture-wise or otherwise, because I said I was about to have some lunch. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to have for lunch. I'm going to, so that you have a reason to come back, you know? Because I, I, you know, this, all the streaming services these days, they, they're all about binging, you know? So you got to leave them wanting more. So I said, well, let me, take a, let me take a page out of their book. I'll have them wondering what I had for lunch all week. Well, now's the time when I tell you. I had a salad. Last we were with the story, Victor Frankenstein and Elizabeth uh, Justine is dead. Poor William is dead. Uh, Elizabeth is anguished. And Victor Frankenstein is even more anguished. And Elizabeth notes it. You know, she's saying, you know, as upset I am, as I am, you seem to be more, even more upset. And he, what he can't say to her is that, yeah, because I fucking did it. I fucking did it. It's my fault. I fucking killed William and I fucking killed Justine. Not directly. I didn't even ask for it to happen, but it happened and it's my fucking fault. And, and uh, she's trying to console him, although she doesn't know quite why she's consoling him. And, and, and the last sentence was, even as she spoke, I drew near to her as if in terror, lest at that very moment, the destroyer had been near to rob me of her. The destroyer is the big buddy, right? Literally speaking, Symbolically speaking, I was like, well, what, you know, what is the nature of the destroyer? How many destroyers have we all unleashed in our times? And I was thinking, no, everybody's going to think about that, you know, all week. And it's going to, you know, they're just, they're really going to get off on thinking about the nature of destroyers. Um, And if not that, then wondering what I had for lunch. Thus, not the tenderness of friendship, nor the beauty of earth nor of heaven, could redeem my soul from woe. The very accents of love were ineffectual. I was encompassed by a cloud which no beneficial influence could penetrate. The wounded deer dragging its fainting limbs to some untrodden break. Oh, a footnote. We haven't had one of those in a little while. So I guess it's, it's referring to the wounded deer dragging its fainting limbs to some untrodden break. It's probably some quote from some goddamn poem that was published at a time when it wouldn't make sense. No, it's just a definition. A break, area of dense undergrowth, a thicket. Okay. So the deer, you know, dragging itself into the woods to die. There to gaze upon the arrow 
which had pierced it and to die out, like I just said, was but a type of me. Sometimes I could cope with the sullen despair that overwhelmed me, but sometimes the whirlwind passions of my soul drove me to seek by bodily exercise and by change of place some relief from my intolerable sensations. It was during an access. And then there's another footnote. All right, calm down, Penguin Classics, with the footnotes. Why don't you calm down with the, with the footnotes, Penguin Classics? We're trying to read a sudden attack or outburst of illness, rage, etc. That's what the access is. All right, fine. Um, so it was during an attack of this kind. You know, he needs to get out. He needs to move his body. He needs to move it, move it. He needs to move it of this kind that I suddenly left my home and bending my steps towards the near Alpine valleys sought in the magnificence, the eternity of such scenes to forget myself in my ephemeral because human sorrows. Interesting. So he's saying, uh, he, uh, she makes a note of saying that his sorrows, Victor Frankenstein's sorrows, are ephemeral because they are human. Why is that interesting, Michael? I don't know. If only because he also, or she make, he makes a point, she, he through she, makes a point of saying that Frankenstein, the creature, the big buddy, is not human, okay? So if Frankenstein's sorrows are ephemeral because they are human, can we then infer that the big buddy's sorrows, should it have sorrows, are not ephemeral? In other words, are they eternal? And if that is the case, can we say that, uh, uh, okay, I'm doing, I'm sort of doing literary math in my head with symbolism, and it's, it's quickly devolving into numerology of sorts. But if we say, right, that we humans are, I guess we're, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm literally just sputtering right now, and it might just be because I'm in pain. And I haven't taken any medication, by the way, Okay. If I were to take medication, you'd, be, and you'd listen to this episode and you'd be like, well, yeah, he was high as a fucking kite when he recorded. He's not making any sense at all. No, I haven't even taken a, an ibuprofen. That's, that's my after lunch treat because I haven't had lunch today either. For an after lunch treat, I'm going to give myself a little Advil. Oh, they're delicious. The, with the candy coating. Oh, I love an Advil. I haven't had that yet, but I was sort of trying to understand the nature sorrows as being ephemeral versus eternal, and I was trying to equate the human creator, or let's say the godlike creator. What kind of sorrows does the godlike, does the god figure have? That's what I was trying to arrive at. Are they also eternal, or does the god not have sorrow? Mm, I think I just don't like this sentence that she wrote. Because I don't think it lines up with everything else that we've talked about so far. And I would rather that I can blame that on her than on my own faulty literary analysis. <sighs> Sought in the magnificence, the eternity. Okay, the eternity of such scenes. So he's contrasting the eternity. She's contrasting the eternity of nature 
with the ephemera of humanity. That I can get behind, okay? Look, I'm sorry to spend so much time on a sentence, but I'm trying to understand it a little bit better. Sorrows, because they are human, are ephemeral. Nature is eternal. Sorrow, nature itself, has no sorrow. That's what I think she's saying. All right. My wanderings were directed toward the valley of Chamonix. I had visited it frequently during my boyhood. Six years had passed since then. I was a wreck, but naught had changed in those savage and enduring scenes. I performed the first part of my journey on horseback. I afterwards hired a mule as the more sure-footed and least liable to receive injury on these rugged roads. The weather was fine. It was about the middle of the month of August, nearly two months after the death of Justine, that miserable epoch from which I dated all my woe. Wow! I guess poor William can just go fuck himself, huh? His own brother died, right? But he, counting the date that Justine died as the start date of his woe. I mean, you know, we often refer to poor William, but poor William. Denigrated in such a way. He cares more about Justine. And if you remember in the letter that Elizabeth wrote to him, that, you know, that kind of gossipy letter going like, where are you? I love you. I miss you. Like all of that. You know, she, she had to explain to him who Justine even was. And now he's like, you know, Justine died. That's when all my woes started. Well, your fucking brother died, brah. Come on. The weight upon my spirit was sensibly lightened as I plunged yet deeper in the ravine of Arve. The immense mountains and precipices that overhung me on every side. The sound of the river raging among the rocks and the dashing of the waterfalls around spoke of a power mighty as omnipotence, and I ceased to fear or to bend before any being less almighty than that which had created and ruled the elements here displayed in their most terrific guise. Still, as I ascended higher, the valley assumed a more magnificent and astonishing character. Ruined castles hanging on the precipices of piney mountains, the impetuous arve, and cottages every here and there peeping forth from among the trees formed a scene of singular beauty. But it was augmented and rendered sublime by the mighty Alps, whose white and shining pyramids and domes towered above all, as belonging to another earth, the habitations of another race of beings. So, long sort of descriptive paragraph there, and a lovely one, and it speaks again to this idea of the eternity of nature, but also, I think, to Frankenstein's own inflated sense of self, because he's saying that I would not bend uh, to any creator less than the one who created this. Now, I understand. We don't worship false prophets. We don't bend our knee to the minor deities. But he himself is Prometheus, right? So he himself has attained uh, a kind of godlike status. 
and he knows it, I think. He thinks of himself as being somewhere, I think, between the, um, the hoi polloi of humanity and the, the eternal realm of the gods. He's somewhere caught in the middle. He is still subject to their whims, but he himself can create chaos and misery just like them. All right, I'm going to take, I have to take a break. All right, I just have to take a break. I have to stretch to the, uh, to the extent that I can. My muscles be aching, yo. We'll be right back here on Obscure. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Frankenstein, you know, ascending from the Valley of Humanity to the peaks, uh, or at least to the foothills of the Alps where the gods live. I passed the bridge of Pellissier. I mean, I'm getting all these pronunciations wrong. It doesn't matter unless, you know, you're Swiss and then you can just laugh at me. Where the ravine, which the river forms, opened before me and I began to ascend the mountain that overhangs it. Soon after, I entered the valley of Chamonix, This valley is more wonderful and sublime, but not so beautiful and picturesque as that of Cervaux, through which I had just passed. The high and snowy mountains were its immediate boundaries, but I saw no more ruined castles and fertile fields. Immense glaciers approached the road. I heard the rumbling thunder of the falling avalanche and marked the smoke of its passage. Mont Blanc the supreme and magnificent Mont Blanc raised itself from the surrounding Aguiles. Aguiles? Aguiles? It means peaks. I know that. I, it's a, there's a footnote there, and I don't have to turn to it because I saw when I looked up the last footnote that the next footnote was going to mean peaks. It means peaks. 
Susan. I don't know why I've started inserting the name Susan into this, but I have. And its tremendous dome overlooked the valley. A tingling, long-lost sense of pleasure often came across me during this journey. Some turn in the road, some new object suddenly perceived and recognized, reminded me of days gone by and were associated with the light-hearted gaiety of boyhood. The very winds whispered in soothing accents, and maternal nature bade me weep no more. Then again, the kindly influence ceased to act. I found myself fettered again to grief and indulging in all the misery of reflection. Then I spurred on my animal, striving so to forget the world, my fears, and more than all, myself. Or, in a more desperate fashion, I alighted and threw myself on the grass, weighed down by horror and despair. At length I arrived at the village of Chamonix. Exhaustion succeeded to this extreme fatigue both of body and of mind which I had endured. For a short space of time, I remained at the window, watching the pallid lightnings that played above Mont Blanc, and listening to the rushing of the Arve, which pursued its noisy way beneath. The same lulling sounds acted as a lullaby to my two keen sensations when I placed my head upon my pillow. Sleep crept over me. I felt it as it came and blessed the giver of oblivion. I mean, a kind of interesting few pages here. Somewhat unlike what Victor Frankenstein has described to us before. Um, a, 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 a amusing, you know? I'm not, I'm not saying amusing, like funny. Like it is amusing on... Nature, a few strong paragraphs of descriptive writing just of his surroundings. He's taken a little trip. He can't sit still anymore. He's got to get out. And so he goes to the mountains, as you do. And, you know, he, he describes what he sees. And it seems to me to be some sort of, in contemplating nature, he's contemplating his own nature. I think. I think that's what it is. As his geography changes, so do his moods. He is happy to be out of the house and, you know, it's picturesque and it's beautiful and there's wildflowers and whatever. And then as he gets higher and those disappear, his mood changes with it. He ends up in despair, throwing himself on the grass, weeping, gnashing, you know, beating a brows, the whole thing. And then he finds himself finally exhausted from all that in a hotel, I guess, you know, watching nature through a pane of glass, having wrung himself out, listening at some remove to nature, and then being temporarily destroyed by it when he falls asleep. So I don't know. I don't know what any of it means. I never do. But, you know, my enthusiastic hackery demands that I interrogate the scenery, the scenery of the book not of Frankenstein's surroundings, although I'm doing that too. Anyway, that's the end of chapter one. Shall we delve a little bit into chapter two? Why not? Right? We got some time. I'm delaying standing up a little bit because when I do, I know it's going to hurt. Chapter two. 
I spent the following day roaming through the valley. I stood beside the sources of the Arviron, I don't know, which take their rise in a glacier that with slow pace is advancing down from the summit of the hills to barricade the valley. Okay, I'm bored. Like, okay, like, it was fine. Like, you, you took your little trip, and it was fine through chapter one, but I don't want to continue the panorama, the nature-rama in chapter two. Like, just talk, just fucking do something. The abrupt sides of vast mountains were before me. The icy wall of the glacier overhung me. A few shattered pines were scattered around, and the solemn silence of this glorious presence chamber of imperial nature, and nature is capitalized there, was broken only by the brawling waves or the fall of some vast fragment The thunder sound of the avalanche or the cracking reverberated along the mountains of the accumulated ice, which, through the silent working of immutable laws, was ever and anon rent and torn, as if it had been but a plaything in their hands. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquilized it. In some degree, also, they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month. I retired to rest at night. My slumbers, as it were, waited on and ministered to by the assemblance of grand shapes which I had contemplated during the day. They congregated round me, the unstained snowy mountaintop, the glittering pinnacle, the pine woods and ragged bare ravine, the eagle soaring amidst the clouds. They all gathered round me and bade me be at peace. Why not put that paragraph at the end of the last chapter, right? Bade me be at peace. Good. End of chapter one. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? We don't need... Okay, he arrived at the village, fine. He's exhausted, fine. You know, he goes to sleep, he watches the lightnings, and then he just kind of repeats him. You know, the chapter ends, and then he repeats himself in the beginning of chapter two. All right. Let's keep going a little bit more in the hopes that something happens. Where had they fled when the next morning I awoke? All of soul in spiriting fled with sleep and dark melancholy clouded every thought. The rain was pouring in torrents, and thick mists hid the summits of the mountains, so that I even saw not the faces of those mighty friends. Still, I would penetrate their misty veil and seek them in their cloudy retreats. What were rain and storm to me? My mule was brought to the door, and I resolved to ascend to the summit of Montanvert, I remembered the effect that the view of the tremendous and ever-moving glacier had produced upon my mind when I first saw it. It had then filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light 
and joy. The sight of the awful and majestic in nature had indeed always the effect of solemnizing my mind and causing me to forget the passing cares of life. I determined to go without a guide, for I was well acquainted with the path and the presence of another would destroy the solitary grandeur of this scene. I'm going to stop there. The last episode, we talked about the nature of, uh, we didn't talk, I mean, I was bloviating as I always do, about the nature of the destroyer, what destroys. I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to say what destroys also restores, right? There is that sense of creative destruction in all things, that when something is washed away, something must take its place because nature abhors a vacuum. So every destructive act is met in some sense by a creative act. And the nature of destruction leads inexorably to the act of creation. And nature, I think, right now is playing both of those themes against Victor Frankenstein's mind as he goes up and down hill and dale through this wonderland where he lives, the Swiss Alps. Every moment is pine trees growing, pine trees shattered, the river, you know, snow-capped mountains, but, you know, followed by avalanches, ice cracking and being torn asunder. You know, it's, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of a smorgasbord here that he's sampling from. And every act of destruction is, lifts, elevates his spirits. And then the next day he's down in the dumps and he's like, no, nah, I need to get back there. I need to climb Mont Blanc or the fucking glacier or whatever it is he's doing in the hopes of finding something. What is he looking for? Maybe to be cleansed of his sins. But we know that's not going to happen. We know whatever he's seeking from without has to come from within. And no matter how many eagles he sees flying above that are kind of, you know, saying, it's fine, Victor, it's fine. We know that it's not fine. You know, I was watching a TV show last night and one of the characters is talking about a mistake that he made, you know, terrible, terrible mistake when he made when he was young. And he says, mistakes can always be fixed. And another character looks at him kind of dubiously and says, do you really believe that, son? And then the first character kind of turns around, walks back to his truck, and halfway there, he says, I guess I don't. That's the question, right? Can mistakes be fixed? Or are they just, you know, unlike our sorrows, eternal? Is a mistake eternal? Or are they ephemeral? And who are we to say what's a mistake and what isn't? Again, it's the butterfly effect, baby. It's the butterfly effect. These are the things we keep coming back to. What do we unleash on this world? And how do we know whether it's a mistake or not? We're just doing our best. All our blasted good intentions, all of our ambitions set forth in this world on paths that we devise but cannot navigate. My back feels fine at the moment. Maybe that's why I've been able to get my words out without all the stumbling and hemming and hawing of earlier in the episode. I don't know. But I wait for the snow to fall. I wait for my back to heal. I wait for something to happen in this book. 
and I am again, like last week, about to go get some lunch. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make you wait, you know, to let you know what it's gonna be. It's almost definitely gonna be another salad. I've been eating a lot of salads, so it's not that exciting. But that's what I'm gonna have: a salad, um, maybe with some cold cuts on top. This is what I've been having: mixed greens, a little bit of cold cut, some peppers, and a little dressing. Boom, easy lunch. Is it delicious? Getting less so by the day, but that's what I've been doing. All right, we'll continue on our own little nature walk, right? In, in every sense of the word nature. Uh, the next time on another, let's say, uh, fortuitous, it's not really fortuitous, um, uh, mind-bending, eh, maybe, uh, glacier-like? Yeah, that's probably what it's been like. That's what it feels like right now. You know, there's glaciers up there that he's climbing, and the pace of it is getting a little glacier-like. Glacier-like. On another glacier-like episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedrin. Join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.